Welcome to the Imposture to Unstoppable podcast, where physicians can learn how to overcome imposter syndrome and create the career of their dreams. All right, my friends, I have a really good episode in store for you today. I am interviewing someone who I think you'll be really inspired by, and she's so well-spoken. She's just fantastic. Before we get into that interview, though, I want to tell you about something that I have been cooking up. And I'm definitely going to do a podcast episode on this all in itself because it's unique and weird and kind of strange. And I just think there needs to be more examples of doctors doing creative things. So what it is, is I've created a personalized play program. And I have decided that I am now a self-proclaimed pleasure architect. And what that means is that I plan, build, and execute play programs for adults who need to have more play, but don't have the time to do it. So as I talk about a lot on this podcast, play is a biologic necessity and adults don't do enough of it. And the problem is that we don't have time to research it. We don't know what's going to be fun. We don't want to do it wrong. There's just a lot of barriers to that. So essentially what I will do is do a brief consult with you, find out some things that will be important for me to design a play program. And then I create events and plan them and during times that you told me you're available. So I'm just getting this off the ground. I'm really excited about it. And it's been really fun for me to plan play for other people because it also gives me some creative ideas about how to play myself. So if you want a preview, a free preview on a personalized play program for yourself, then all you have to do is click the link in the show notes, or you can go to www.consciousinmedicine.com forward slash pleasure. Okay. Let me tell you about the guest today. It's Dr. Jillian Reigert, and she is a dentist and a doctor, and she's also a postdoctoral research fellow in radiation oncology. She's a certified professional leadership coach and a Martha Beck Wayfinder life coach. She is also an Air Force veteran, marathoner, and D3 college endurance runner. She has an incredible story, and it includes pivoting from a fast-track trajectory into the Air Force, oral and maxillofacial surgery, following three years of residency, following the development of suicidal ideation. And she's has an incredible YouTube channel where she talks a lot about humanity and vulnerability in medicine. So I hope you really enjoy this interview. You can find more about Jillian and her YouTube channel, which I'll link below. Enjoy. Jillian, I'm so happy to have you here. Finally, we were talking offline about how this is like six months in the making. (laughs) I'm super stoked to be here. So thank you so much for having me. Yeah. Well, you have been on such a whirlwind of life adventures already. So I would love to hear your version of that through the lens of experiences with self-doubt and imposter syndrome. Yeah, and it's definitely very pervasive and and in scope of the timeline that we have for today's discussion, I'll try to be brief in a way that really resonates. And I think about, as I told you, Reese, shout out to everyone that knows me, they will know that I try to bring up Reese in every discussion, which is actually a key turning point in my recovery for the things that we are talking about now in the grounding and things that really matter. So when it comes to imposter syndrome, and when I heard some of the things that you shared, something that really resonated for me when you were talking about your initial stories with imposter syndrome and being on call, Mm -hmm. uh, call was a really big heavy hitter for me. 
Um, but then I will tell a little bit more depth, but I want to start with call because I know call is something that people really have a lot of anxiety about. And for people, especially early on in training who might have similar experiences I do, I just really want to put this story out there because now I laugh at it. So for call, I had such bad anticipatory anxiety. And when I really dissected it down and where now I realized fits the self-doubt imposter syndrome and also an overflated uh, understanding of what my responsibilities were as an intern, I went into call thinking I needed to know all of the answers. I needed to know anything that was happening with any patient that might be come in. I thought that I needed to be the one to take care of every step of the way, not thinking that they would be going to the emergency room. They would be stabilized by all the people there. There would be time between the time I was paged getting to the patient and I would not be alone as their savior. But my brain offered me that if I did not know something in the steps, if I was not there immediately when I was paged, if I was not there to save the patient, then I was an immediate failure. I was incompetent. I didn't deserve to be there. Mm-hmm. So that type of very dramatic response to my perceived responsibility and depth of what I thought I needed to know as an intern was very pervasive. And that's just a snapshot of a very common thought process I had. But when I think about imposter syndrome and where I can actually label it really showing up was when I was on my oral surgery interviews. Uh, And I say that because I came from a dental school that was such a great dental school, but it didn't have a lot of uh, ratings when it came to research. Like it's not one of those top schools that gets a whole lot of research funding. So it's relatively wouldn't be known by its name as highly as other institutions. So I had, you know, concerns and that's where I started comparing to people who were on my interview path which comparison we should never do. We know that, but you can't, you know, can't stop our brain. And I thought I had only gotten to the interviews because I was technically a free resident because I was in the military. So the military was paying for me. So I had learned that through people that called me right away when I submitted my match information, when they call me right away and they explained to me like, oh yeah, we really want you. And they let me know because you're free for us it made me doubt myself. Like, do they want me for me? Would I have gotten here if it wasn't for the military? And I let that self-doubt run the show every day in my residency. And for people that know my story, uh, I eventually did leave surgery And I've had to reflect a lot. It's been five years from now. And I've had to reflect a lot now that people are coming out with terms that I didn't know back then, terms like burnout, terms like imposter syndrome. And I have to insert, if I would have known then, what I know now, would I have stayed? And the answer truly is probably not because I developed suicidal ideation as a response to sleep deprivation. However, the level of suffering that I endured for my own thoughts about myself would have been a lot less. That's there definitely a guarantee. Mm-hmm. Absolutely. And so what eventually made you transition and have the pivot to what you're doing now? And if you don't mind talking a little bit about the, the work you're doing now and how you ended up in this place that you're at. Yeah. So the work I'm doing now kind of stepping it, I'll say where I'm at and then try to step it backwards. It's a 
little bit not linear. So I'll try to give it in a way that people will try to follow. And if they don't, uh, then they can definitely, we'll have more chats in the future and on my channel and whatnot to try to explain it a little bit better. I'm currently a research fellow in radiation oncology. It's an NIH funded position and it's something that I wouldn't have known existed. So I say this for anybody that's trying to figure out, especially if in the depths of burnout or in a career pivot, they're like, I have no idea what I'm doing. And they're trying to plan it. Well, sometimes the job you're looking for, you may not know exists. You may just have an idea of what you want. So what I knew I was interested in, um, when I was in oral surgery, we, my program didn't have a lot of involvement with cancer patients, but I did the six-year program. So I finished the medical school portion. During medical school, I found myself really called towards uh, saving space and holding space for patients that were dealing with end-of-life concerns or really difficult diagnoses. And when I was coping in oral surgery with my own existential crises, I was coping with anorexia and I, it got to a point where I almost died from it. And I say that just as a fact, because I learned as a patient that people have a really hard time relaying messages when it's really bad news. I was left alone often and I was left alone knowing I might die and and observing our deficits when it comes to healthcare and the humanity that's missing. And there was a, a family medicine physician who his role was to sit with cancer patients, stage four cancer patients. And he said, what can I do for you? How can I help you? How can I serve you? And I was on that rotation while also doing like integrative medicine. And at that time, it's, I think the terminology changed was complementary alternative medicine. There's a lot of different approaches. It was very humanizing. And I felt really like, I just, I never wanted to end that rotation. Something about it really spoke to me. So when I was trying to figure out when I left surgery, the, the way I decided um, during my surgery residency, uh, my ex-boyfriend had passed away and I was medically discharged from the air force. And I think that I kind of leveraged my illness. I didn't have the opportunity to say I am going to intentionally resign, but I knew I was too sick to continue. My next year was going to be general surgery. And I think if I would have had the words and confidence, I could have just intentionally said, I'm going to do something for myself, but really it was an act of like, I, I just need to get out of here so that I don't die. Um, so that's how I made the decision to leave oral surgery. And while I was in, this is why it's a little bit challenging to follow. I'm sorry. But while I was in the hospital for my eating disorder, while trying to figure out what was happening with my life with the military, I was in touch with my next program, which would be oral medicine residency. And I did get accepted into that residency. So after the Air Force said, yes, you are medically discharged, I held on to my oral surgery position until the last potential day. I gave in my papers, I think it was like October 29th, 2017. The next day I was technically a resident in the next residency. So this is why I speak a lot to people who are dealing with burnout and say, please don't do what I do having that period of rest between what you do to recover and really, if you can, uh, to really rest and say intentionally, what do I need? Because I spent the next residency was two years and I did it while burnout. And it was a mm -hmm. horrible uh, experience personally 
trying to just grit and bear it. And I think that I definitely could have done better from a personal standpoint had I rested first. But oral medicine residency for people who don't know what it is, it's a specialty of dentistry, which combines a lot of medical rotations. So I rotate through internal medicine, rheumatology, uh, medical oncology, radiation oncology, and we help manage the oral manifestations of systemic conditions. So it's kind of trying to reintegrate dentistry and medicine. And there again, I got a lot of work with cancer patients. And I felt that's my niche. Those are my people because that's the people I can serve the most. And so then I was attending at an institution. That's when COVID hit and it wasn't the best fit. It was more dentistry than I thought was a good fit for me. And while navigating what I could lean into, I actually uh, was given the lead to my boss's tweet about the position that I eventually got. So I, I love sharing that part of the story because people are always, you know, we, we put so much pressure on the traditional path and we can really put blinders on when we just, if we're open and just take some chances, it can really lead us into a destination we may never have created for ourselves. Mm-hmm. Absolutely. Absolutely. I want to, if you don't mind, I want to go back to the time where you were having the suicidal ideation. And I want to focus on this because I think that it's probably affects more of us than we know. Mm -hmm. And I think it's really a testament to your courage to talk about it. And I think that the more of us that do, the better off we'll all be. So I don't know if you'd be willing to talk about like, when did you realize that that was happening? and, And was there an internal crisis to not admit it and, and all of those things that I feel like so many doctors might experience when you're like, whoa, this is happening. And then maybe there's shame or fear or all of that w- with also the real fear that there's a crisis happening. Yes, I felt, so I started to have, some, I developed major depression after I joined the military and was starting to realize that I don't know if I love surgery enough to to dedicate myself to this lifestyle. I was doing a pre-intern year. They called it a zero. And during that time period, the long hours and the way that it was structured destroyed me, made me feel it was like a sub intern. So they called it a zero. And it was the first time in my life. And I think a lot of times people experience this from their second year to the third year in medical school where I felt like, like I didn't know anything. So this is probably another experience with imposter syndrome that I hadn't yet named. So I felt I was out of place, fish out of water. Should I even be here? And that's when I first developed depression and had, I hadn't actually ever experienced it before. And I was in the military, everything was new. And I just felt like if I were to even inquire as to if I've made the wrong move for myself, that I might let down the air force, let down the board. I might be less than, but because I was dealing with such severe depression, I did meet with the oral surgery board. And I said, you know, I'm concerned about my mental health in this circumstance. And they said, it's probably just your confidence or the structure of the military program. And I had already been matched into a program that was a a really great fit for me. And so I was looking forward to going to the program I ended up at. 
And so I thought, okay, well, it's kind of the arrival fallacy, right? Maybe it will get better when I go to my program. So I start my program and immediately in like the first few months, I was at the VA and I was with a great attending, but, you know, honing in on the style of teaching where you, you kind of break people down and build them up. I, I broke down and broke down and broke down. So if someone were to like constantly ask me questions and make me feel like I, I don't know things, well, my mind already was offering me that I was an idiot, right? So then I would just take that and use it to confirmation bias, validate. Yeah, I don't deserve to be here. You're absolutely right. I should probably, you know, at that point, I didn't even think I should probably withdraw. I thought that because the shame, as you mentioned, shame, the guilt, the letdown, I thought I would rather die than uh, show my shape, my face in shame and guilt and let people down and feel what that would feel like to not live up to the expectations that I perceive others to be having for me. Mm -hmm. Yeah. And I think that's a real thing. And in many ways in medicine, it's almost like that is expected of us to feel that way. Like if you don't behave or practice in a certain way, then you should be feeling guilty about that. I think that there's a range of feelings that many physicians can relate to that are very similar to how you felt. So I'd love to pivot if you don't mind and talk a little bit about, I know you've been through some training programs for coaching and knowing what you know now on that end of things, what from the different programs that you've been in um, with coaching, what has been the most useful resources or tools that you use now for yourself and others when it comes to self-doubt, the self-loathing, all of those things that you think have been the most pivotal in your life? I think the most pivotal book is, so I did Martha Beck's The Way You Find Your Life Coach Training Program. I really liked her book, The Way of Integrity. It's really helped me validate that my decision to leave surgery was the right choice for me. And it's also grounded me within my integrity and authenticity in a way that helps me with any self-doubt. And I say that because if I'm doing something that's true to me, that's authentic to me, then it's exciting to learn and grow. Whereas if I do have self-doubt or what we call imposter syndrome, I ask people to step back and really think about what is it really? Because I had a lot of doubts. Are they self-doubts that I can do it? Are they self-doubts I'm doing the right thing for me? Because I knew in my heart I could do surgery. I could. We could do hard things, right? Mm -hmm. I just, I think at the core was realizing I feel like I don't love this enough to sacrifice the things I need to. And I was feeling guilty for offering that to people, which I do coach quite a few surgeons who have that same, same shared experience of, do I even admit that I would like to prioritize spending time with my family? Because we're taught not to value that. I even had a really hard time now as a research fellow going to the gym without feeling guilty. And that's for me, very essential for my mental health. But if I'm not working, which is another thing that we have to let go of, it's saying like, we need to learn how to schedule time to do non-work things. Because what happened in residency is I dropped everything off. I was only a resident. I had put my core identity in everything I did as a resident. So if that was not going well, I was not well. And my ex-boyfriend who passed away in residency, I felt a lot of guilt because I saw it. It was that pivotal experience. So what happened was I was very vocally not doing well. My ex-boyfriend called to check in on me and I was so tired. And I share this on Kevin MD. I was just so tired. 
and I didn't answer the phone call. And I, that's something I never would have done because I love this person deeply. It's like, you know, that I'm always going to pick up whatever he does in dental school. When we were dating, I dropped everything the moment he needed anything. And he left me a voicemail, which I kept. It's a great reminder to focus on what really matters in life, but I didn't answer the call and I never got to talk to him ever again. And it was such a meaningful time point to say, you know what, screw all these superficial things that do not matter. You don't ever know what's going to happen. And his death was more profound to me than even hearing that I might die from my medical compromise from anorexia. I feel like sometimes when we see things in others, it's easier to really, truly have it resonate. I think that's why group coaching and things like that helps a lot. Mm -hmm. But I think that grounding in our integrity, our authenticity, our core values can really help. Because if we're doubting ourselves, it can just be that opportunity to learn and to know that no matter what you're doing, you're doing it in accordance with your true values. Mm -hmm. Yeah. And I think it's hard to overcome how pervasive that, I don't know if it's a martyrdom or what is in medicine, but exactly like you said, it's, it's almost like frowned upon to put your own needs or your family's needs above the job. And that's something that I've certainly found in this transition that I'm making that it it's initially, it was easier for me to say that I'm doing this for someone else mm-hmm. than admitting that I knew this was the right thing for me. Yeah. And it still is a challenge to admit that, um, it's just not right for me anymore for whatever reason it is. But I think that that it takes a lot of courage to admit that. Definitely. And I think this brings up a lot of things that are constructs of the boundaries, right? When we have struggled to put up boundaries where people pleasing, especially in women in medicine, I found I struggle a lot with the word no. Mm -hmm. And with saying no in a way that's no, I need no, because I will be doing this instead. It's always, I have this mind drama and I really have to lean into this now too. It's like, no, you know, no. And then just allowing that to be okay. Mm -hmm. And then also when we think about and examine, there's a lot of things that, so I appealed to stay in the air force. And during my appeal, there was a trauma surgeon who was the person across the table asking me the questions And I had guilt that, you know, I didn't want to say like, if I had better balance in my life, I think I could really truly be healthy and devote a lot to the air force. I was in love with the air force. I thought I could be a strong attribute to the air force, but the fact that I wasn't staying in surgery, which I was already self-conscious about made this person have all these contracts of me. Like, if you're not doing that, you're, you know, whatever. And whatever it was, he said, or how I interpreted it because of what I was going through at the time, who knows? But I think what it brought to my attention was when we think about what we value as productivity measures, right? I spent a lot of my day very busy. Like I have a lot of things that I could do. And if we truly are even finances, right? We have this like scarcity of finances. Well, even the people that have a ton of finances have that scarcity model. So like, where are we wasting all of our time and energy and does it truly matter? And I, I really value and I'm grateful for the opportunity to have developed suicidal ideation because I constantly go back to thinking like, 
is this truly worth it? And in the face of what is the end outcome for us all? Like if we talked more about our mortality in healthcare and really put into perspective our lives, I kind of feel like our whole society buffers with drama, <laughs> like mm-hmm. with scarcity drama. And the news is like just drama. And I speak a lot about, you know, diet culture and its influence on my life when it comes to anorexia. And it gives me a lot of pain when our coping skills become maladaptive, but also you can see the cultural values and a lot of it that really irks me and where I come back to the way of integrity and Martha Beck's work is if you really palpate the energy of that, like how it makes you feel and the toxicity of, you know, like a lot of people are anxious and depressed. Well, you know, we're, we're not focusing on humanity, not only in healthcare, but like society at large, what does, what do we truly need at our core? Yeah. Yeah. Those are all great points and so useful for a useful conversation for what's going on today. Certainly. So I'd love to end if you just, if you don't mind talking about your YouTube channel and um, what it's about and the kind of things you talk about on there. Of course, I always get excited. So I get excited about YouTube because during all of my life, that was my social scene. Mm. I no one knew anything about what was going on in my life, but I really got to know YouTubers and I valued really genuine people that seemed grounded. And so I created the channel to invite people to share their stories, especially who they are outside of their titles and to really try to help people ground themselves in life before they have the outcomes that I did that make you, right? When you hit that rock bottom and you're forced to change your life, I would really like to help offer people the opportunity to give themselves permission to do that earlier. Yeah, that's, that sounds great. And I'm going to link that below um, so people can check that out. Well, Jillian, it's been really great having you. Thank you for all of your vulnerability. I'm sure we'll be chatting again soon. Yeah, absolutely. Thank you so much, Kristen. It's been a pleasure and I love your podcast so much. So thank you for all you do. Hey there, just wanted to take some quick time here to let you know that if you have been thinking about doing a podcast and it feels really overwhelming and you like the idea of podcasting, but the other stuff like the editing and production feels too overwhelming. I wanted to let you know about the people who now edit and produce my podcast, which is Pretty Easy Podcasts. And for the first year and a half of my podcast, I was doing everything myself and I had tried to contract out editing and it was really got some really, really bad results. So I was hesitant to try again, but I'm so glad that I did because working with Pretty Easy Podcasts has been so amazing. They can get your shows recorded, posted with a complete podcast studio at your disposal. You could record from home, your office or the park or really anywhere. And then they totally cater to your schedule and It's just so easy to work with them. I cannot say enough good things. So if it's been on your mind to do a podcast, then definitely check out Pretty Easy Podcast at prettyeasypodcast.com and sign up today. It's super affordable and it's so fun working with them. So definitely check it out. (music) Thank <music> you.